Hello, my name is Ben Oden. I am an author, capacity building and leadership development trainer. Each week, Mimi, pamoja na viongozi mbalimbali who will be featured on this podcast, will bring you leadership principles, stories and philosophies that if applied will elevate you into a position of more influence among those you lead and those who lead you. Greetings to you. I hope you are doing well and are having a good day. Welcome to another episode of the Why Lead Others podcast. I am your host, Ben Odin. Now, today we'll be looking at the role leadership plays in building a successful uh, startup and business. And to have this conversation, I am joined by a person who is uh, more interested in the success of, you know, startups next to only founders. Uh, he's an angel investor, an investment banker. He's the author of two books titled Dare to Die and Smart Up Your Startup. He is the founder and CEO of SSC Capital, uh, an investment advisory firm that boasts a portfolio that amounts to over $400 million in project value. A true son of Tanzania, Brother Saluma Wad, Karibu sana. Um, as someone who is interested in investing and as an angel investor who hopefully soon will become a venture capitalist, um, what skills do you normally look for in the person or team that is running a startup? Say you're thinking of investing in a company uh, beyond just the idea uh, that they have, beyond you know um, the readiness of the market. What skills do you look in the team? Because I think skills that you know, if they are missing, then the success is very likely to happen and failure will probably be inevitable. So for me, actually, it's not the traditional skills that we, we talk about. For, for me, actually, it's passion, to be honest with you. Mm. Uh, because I think all other types of skills can be built, uh, can be trained, but you cannot build passion into someone. It's, it's more within, uh, you know, with, with, with someone. So for me, one thing I tell you is passion. And it's passion because I've seen many successful founders, uh, you know, getting to where they are just because of, of passion, having passion for what they do. Uh, you may have all the skills in the world, but if you're not passionate with what you do, you, your chances of giving up are so high uh, on the way. Yeah, that, that's actually true. And I think there's a, there's a podcast uh, that we did a while back and, you know, where we communicated our definition of passion. And we said passion is um, the emotional commitment towards an idea or an initiative to a degree where you're willing to sacrifice and suffer for it. So there's, there's mm. an element of suffering and sacrifice mm. involved. This, mm. you know, this doggedness where you don't want to quit mm. over an idea. I think sometimes when people say passion, uh, people who are on the outside think, mm. you know, it's it's a love, it's some emotions towards something. But I think the sacrifice aspect of passion, the mm. suffering aspect mm. of passion um, mm. is something that we often overlook but i think it's very important when we talk about passion yeah. we talk about passion and building businesses yeah yeah that's true that's yeah. true um now startup success is a result of a number of factors mm. because you know there's an idea there's a team there's timing there's the business model and there's funding now but they say these factors are not equally important some yeah. are more important depending on your context mm. than others mm. in our tanzanian context which factor do you think is lacking the most out of these five which one do you think is more of a challenge and a roadblock to the progress of a lot of the startups? So I don't know whether we would use talent and skills, you know, in Masli, 
but mm. I think talent to me is the, is the number one challenge. Uh, mm. So it's probably within the team structure of a company mm. uh, because there's a difference between having knowledge and having talent. Uh, and for me, I think building a company requires much more of talent, uh, the, the ability to, you know, build a unique solution, you know, beyond what we traditionally look at. So I think skills, talent, to me, within the team is the major challenge. And at times, of course, I think you said earlier, uh, startups tend to be very founder-heavy, uh, founder-focused. So the founder might probably uh, be in a position to have the talent that the, he or she needs to build a company. But at the end of the day, to build a successful company, you you probably need to build a strong team around you as well. So that's where the challenge starts. Uh, you may point talent within the founder, him or myself, but unfortunately, seeing the same level of, oh, it's just a, the talent above the founder within the team is always a challenge. Uh, and that's one of the major risks that any investor, uh, you know, want to run away from. Because if everything is centered around the founder, what happens if something happens to this founder and you invested your money? Uh, <laughs> yeah, true. That's a real risk. Yeah. Th- there's, a, there's a book um, called um, The Captain Theory. Um, which is, they call it the new leadership theory by a guy called Sam Walker, where he talks about this idea of, he he, he was, he did research, um, mm-hmm. I think in a span of about 50 years, mm-hmm. where he was looking at uh, sports teams, mm-hmm. everything from football to basketball, to rugby, American football, any mm-hmm. sport that has at least five players on both teams. Mm-hmm. And trying to look at, okay, what made them successful, especially teams that were, ridiculously successful like mm. i guess the pele brazil right they mm. won multiple world cups um or i guess um lionel messi's barcelona you know mm. a number of teams mm. and he realized that one of the things is that they had a very strong captain so of course if you stop there you would think having a very strong competent leader is the most important thing but of mm. course as he looked further he realized one of the major qualities of all these leaders is that they were not the star player they were not the smartest person in the room. They mm. were not the most competent person mm. in the team. Mm. So, I, so I like that idea. I think, yeah. Yeah, if especially, and I see that a lot because I think the expectation is always that if you are the leader, if you are at the top, then you have to be better than all of us. True. Um, and there's also an insecurity with leaders where if someone is better than you, mm. there's the fear of being replaced. And so, mm. you know, mm. people, leaders tend to sort of like uh, put a stop uh, or ro- block the growth of some of their people. Yeah, but I think visionary leaders would want people who are smarter than them around them mm. uh, because they they know for sure that they, it comes to a point where you, you, you can't think beyond the level that you probably can. And so you need someone who can think beyond that uh, and that's within the team. Uh, so if you're the person that can think the highest, uh, if you're the person who can speak the loudest, uh, and I think if you're the person who can see the farthest, uh, if the fathers cannot take you beyond that, then you're stuck. But if you have people in the team that can think beyond your fathers, that's mm-hmm. where I think the role of the team being more smarter than yourself comes into a play. So for me, I think if you're a leader and you're insecure, uh, you know, of having people around you who are smarter than you, then probably you need some leadership one-on-one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. And, yeah. And, and I think, yeah, because it, it takes humility to to be that kind of a person. Yeah. It's it certainly, um, I think there's a recent, mm. I think my, one of the people that I, I interviewed for the, the last episodes of the first season, um, she's the CEO of Ubongo. Mm. And she, they were advertising at the time. And I think it's something that we were supposed to talk about in the, on the podcast, but then, you know, at, mm. we ran out of time and we didn't speak on it. 
but they were looking for a CEO. And I think somebody who heard about this mm, and they mm, asked mm, me, like, is yeah. she leaving? Is she going yeah. somewhere? And I, I, think and I, I said, no. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, no, she's not. She's she's still going to be working for the company, but it's mm. time for someone else to come and yeah. take this thing even further. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think whenever you look at that, you see there's a certain humility where mm. it takes for you to say, you know what? I think you can do a better job at this yeah. than I can. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how have you developed that? Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a challenge. Unfortunately, uh, coming back to talent, uh, in the industry where I'm working, to be honest with you, especially when it comes to finance and investment, uh, the education system that we have in a country uh, does not give up, give us the type of people that, that will be better than, than what we see in the market in terms of talent and all that. And uh, so I've been struggling myself, actually, uh, to build a team of people that can do what you you want them to do, you know, within the context that we, we, we are saying here. Uh, so if I want someone to replace me, maybe in the next few years, uh, you know, and to take this company forward, probably I have to cast my nest much further beyond Tanzania, uh, to be honest with you. I'm not saying there are no talents here. They are, but this is a huge challenge, to be honest with you, to get people who can excel beyond academic credentials. And so majority of people that we have and the way the culture that we have built is that we think the people can excel is the people who have great academic excellence, which is not, uh, to me, a number one requirement to, to survive in the modern world. And the things that we do today, I can tell you, the things that we know and the services that we offer have, to a large extent, nothing to do with what we learned in school. It's much more about what can you learn after school, you know, how much can you devote and learn and keep on learning every day. I think all leaders tell you about learning. Yes. Uh, so that's the challenge that we see. You have people who are smart, excellent, but they don't have the culture of learning. So over time, they tend to be, uh, you know, overtaken by events. Uh, and then they, they lack that one skill of leadership uh, that you need to, you know, you need to be above your, your time all the time. So yeah. I think that's one thing that we are trying to do. So hopefully in the next few years, we'll be able to to have people around us and people can replace us. Yeah, and I think it's very unfortunate because we, it feels like we're plagued by that. It's what is it? It's this credential fallacy that we have where, mm. and that's why I think if you look back, there's always a wave of people studying a particular thing. Right now, there's a wave of MBAs. I mean, everybody's yeah, doing an true, MBA true. Uh, because I guess the idea is that if I get this, I'll get a better job or if I hire somebody with an MBA, they will mm. do a better job. Mm. But like you said, I think I've heard it too often where mm. people are saying um, relying on certificates primarily is not the best indicator of how true. a person is going to perform. Um, and there are even people now who are going the complete opposite direction mm. where they don't even care about it's just certificates you know yeah. you just look at your competence and yeah. your mindset and your culture and everything yeah. else right now bill gross who's a an investor and fund manager who i guess was the one we we're talking about these five pillars mm. of what could make a startup successful did a survey to try and figure out the biggest reason why startups succeed and he found that timing is the biggest reason i think if we look at zoom for example mm. it was successful but when the pandemic happened its success was, mm -hmm. you know, went all the way up. Um, you can look at different things. For example, mm -hmm. Facebook. I mean, before Facebook, there was MySpace, there was i5. There were a bunch of social medias, yeah. um, but the timing was just right. You know, I mm -hmm. think we can look at all the great um, successful startups. You'd see that before then, there were plenty of businesses that were doing exactly what they were doing, mm -hmm. but they came in at the right time. Airbnb, for example, mm -hmm. that came in at the time where, you know, 
the recession had happened. People mm-hmm. were looking to make extra money. So people mm-hmm. were willing to lease, you know, their homes to yeah. strangers. Yeah. So timing is a very important factor. And, mm-hmm. but then timing is something we don't control. It's hard yeah. to plan timing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so how, and I'm looking at your business as well. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, um, we were just talking about this off air, you know, how mm-hmm. from where you started to where you are now, you've morphed into this, something that looks very different from what it looked when you started. Right. True, true. Um, and looking at the solutions you're developing now, mm-hmm. if you had developed them six, seven years ago, I don't think there would be much traction because I think even at the time mm-hmm. there wasn't much conversation happening or the need, you know, mm-hmm. it was early stages. I think uh, those were the times where the hubs were starting up and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, how did you get your timing right? Um, mm-hmm. And how can a person, like, what do we need to see? What indicators do we need to see that will inform us that, okay, maybe this is the right time to do this, to launch a product or to launch a service or to mm-hmm. make a certain move? Like, how do you gauge timing? How do you plan mm-hmm. timing? Wow. Uh, it's an interesting question. And um, I, don't, I don't think if there's a framework for someone to, <laughs> yeah. to time time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I guess I think it, it, two things. One, uh, which I can quickly think of. One is, I think it, it 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 comes down to you as an individual. That's I think that's where I separate the real entrepreneurs and the one entrepreneurs. Uh, because I think as an entrepreneur, you tend to be visionary. Uh, you tend to see what majority don't. Uh, you know, if you look at Steve Jobs and Macintosh and all that, probably not everybody saw what he was seeing at that time. Uh, so I think it takes you as an individual on one side to see what others don't. And how do you do that? I think it comes down to your, if you're inquisitive enough, if you're analytical enough, probably you can see, uh, you know, you know as things unfold themselves, especially in the industry where you're in. Mm. And the more knowledge you have of the industry, the more history you know about the industry, probably that will give you more uh, arsenals to understand what probably will come. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know events tend to repeat themselves, uh, and at the end of, at the end of the day, uh, you know if you know history a lot and you have a lot of knowledge in the industry that we are in, it's easy for you probably to predict uh, what might happen uh, in the future. So if someone is in the finance industry today, it's so easy to predict what happened in the next ten years with the world of tech uh, in finance. It's so easy to know that probably. If you're in the bookkeeping space, you you won't have any business in the next few years, if not mm-hmm. months. Uh, so I think that will give you uh, an opportunity as an entrepreneur to say, okay, what is happening? You know, ask yourself all these tough questions. Uh, you know, understanding about the consumers, the market, and all that. I think that comes down to you as a person, and and that's I think that's why some entrepreneurs are more successful because they could see that. But secondly, I think with technology, you can try to do that. Because now people talk about prediction and analytics, where with all the big data and everything that we have, probably that data can give you some indication of where the market is heading to. Uh, you know, so I think data and technology can help us to predict the future with all this artificial intelligence and stuff and everything. I think it's easier now than it was 10 years ago to roughly predict what might happen in the future. Yeah, and I, and I guess it goes back to what you were saying, right? Mm. Learning, I think, yeah. of course, to to know the history of your industry and mm. what happened in the past, you have to be someone who's always consuming, 
you know, information, whether it's history, whether it's what current trends, yeah. uh, even when we talk about big data, I mean, you know, all you have to have a certain mindset and uh, of mm-hmm. learning, always learning. Yeah. Uh, there's that idea of, was it uh, unlearning, learning and relearning, I think. Cool. So I think, yeah, I guess this just affirms what you just said about, you yeah. know, you have, always have to be learning. Yeah. Now, it, it said that nine out of 10 startups fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- but you were generous with this number um, in your book, Smart Up Your Startup, where you mm-hmm. said, you know, less than 25% mm-hmm. of startups mm-hmm. succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so based on your experience as an investor, um, what mistakes do experienced founders avoid that rookie founders make? One thing is, I think, building a product or service that you think this is what market wants mm. instead of building what the market really wants. Mm. Uh, so we, we tend to sit in a room because we think we're smart enough. Uh, we think we know the market enough and then we'll be the product or service, which ends up to be uh, less attractive to the market. And I tell you, if you build a product with no enough market, you don't have a business. Uh, you fail. There's mm-hmm. no, there's no way that you can you can do uh, wonders in that area. So what probably experienced founders will do probably they will start with understanding what the market wants. I heard one day Benjamin. I think it's good to use examples which are more relevant to us in Tanzania. I think Benjamin Fernandez. I heard him once say uh, that. Well, I think when he was building Nala, he went out and talked to people in the streets, uh, you know, to understand the real pains that consumers were experiencing at that time. And that's how we started building Nala. So that tells you that if you want to build a solid business, it, it needs to come from the market. You need mm-hmm. to understand what market wants, what consumers want. Uh, so that's one thing I tell for a fact. Recently, we are trying to build a product for, uh, you know, logistics service providers. And then I say, you know, let's do some research. Uh, so we spoke with... I think 25 um, transport transport owners just to understand what the the pains that they're going through and in, in the, the solution we're trying to build. And I tell you, we had to put it on hold uh, because what they taught us was totally different from what we know. And we used the research from other markets where they've developed similar solutions and the solutions are working. But I say, you know what, maybe Tanzanian uh, market can think differently. So let's do some research. So one of the things that you will do probably, because we know, we have tried things in their field, uh, because, you know, you bring to the market what the market probably doesn't need at that, type, at that particular time. You, you you decide now to, to go to the market and understand what the market wants. So for me, number one, and I think the most important is to know what the consumers or the, what the customers want before you build a product. Yeah, actually, that's a pretty good point because I think, yeah, what is it? There's basement ideas where people are just sitting at home yeah. and you're like this. Mm-hmm. And, and it's 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 sad, but it happens a lot where mm-hmm. I think there's this tendency to import innovation mm-hmm. where, you know, there's this cool idea that's happened in the yeah, West and true. it's working. True. And you're like, you know what? I can do the same thing here. And you, mm-hmm. and you, and you bring that here, you know? Yeah, I think yeah. there was a time where... Um, what is it? Intuit was building the accounting system, mm. and then a lot of the guys. I think at the time I was moving around the startup hubs, and you see a lot of guys developing some accounting software mm. um, mm-hmm. that does pretty much what Excel does. It's just yeah. automate Excel, and so people yeah. are like, "Why do I have to pay you for this? While well, I can just stick to you know Excel, or if yeah. you have a what is it, a QuickBooks, you can just do that." So I think, yeah, definitely this mm. idea of going out there and seeing what people truly need versus mm. what you think they want. Yeah. Um, now, adaptability and agility sometimes is about realizing this critical transition points mm. in the growth of an enterprise. Now, mm. I'll give an example of Slack. Mm. Now, Slack, I think it was called Tiny Spec uh, mm. before it became Slack. Mm. And it was a gaming company. They were developing mm. games. Um, and they were given money by investors, mm. a lot of money, millions mm. of dollars, to mm. develop this game. Mm. And of course, the game was an failure. Mm. But then 
while they were developing the game, they developed a software to help them communicate with each other, which was Slack. Mm. And so towards the end, as they, you know, they realized, okay, this thing is a flop. Mm. They realized, wait a minute, we have this service that people in the area seem to like this Slack. So what if we actually turn this into the actual business? Like, mm. okay, um, the thing that we were using to support and to help to communicate with each other, and of course, the rest is history. Slack is, you know, one of the communication um, softwares that people use across mm. the world in the, mm. in the workspace. Mm. Um, but then one of the interesting things is that he had to go mm. back to his investors saying, hey, mm. <laughs> you've given me this amount of money. Mm. This is not going to work, but we have something that might. Um, and of course, the, his success, uh, mm. you know, Stuart Butterfield is the CEO and the founder of that. The success that they've had is to a degree proof of the investor's faith in them. Mm. Now, as an investor, mm. what does the founder have to do to build this level of trust? Because I think I can imagine this having this conversation. You know, mm. what, this is as someone who you've received money from someone else. I read a book where uh, Pixar, the animation company, because um, Steve Jobs was in financing them, and they were saying that every time they had to go to ask for more money from him, he was. With the one meeting you don't look forward to. Mm. Uh, now, how, how, how can founders and leaders build this trust with investors where even when you go through a failure, mm. you can still go up and the investors will still embrace you and give you money? Like what kind of relationship does there need to be and what does the founder, CEO have to do to prove themselves to a degree where you can say, you know what, we'll overlook the failure and still trust you that you'll mm. actually find your way. Yeah. I think it's more on investors than the founders, to be honest. More investors than the founders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because the thing is, uh, one of the things that I tell people every day, don't just take investors' money. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to take money from investors who understand the vertical you're in. So because for them, probably they might have seen what you are seeing now, and they probably want you to take that direction. It's so challenging for you to build a company and probably pivot or, you know, be more, you know, agile and, and change the direction of the company or even when you fail and then let's bounce back and try to do this or do that. If the founders, so if the investors don't understand the business well, don't understand the industry well, or maybe they are not in business before themselves, mm. uh, it's just, it's not easy for, for you, for you to sell that. Mm. But if the, if the investors, uh, that, that, you know, you're giving you the money, know the industry very well. Let me just give you a very simple example. Today I work, uh, we, we build an angel network in Tanzania. And for me, I only participate in, 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 in investment talks if the investment is on fintech because in the industry, which I know. Uh, so it's so easy for me to have a conversation with a fintech founder if if he fails, if he wants to, you know, change the direction of the company. Because I know the industry. Probably I was in a position where he is today. So it's easy. I think so. That's why I say it's more on investors rather than founders when you're building this trust thing. Uh, one. But secondly, I think trust is not spoken. Uh, is trust is built and and is built over time. So if you have worked with investors for a certain period of time, you must have built that trust. So talking to them in one meeting won't change anything, uh, to be honest, because the trust has been built for the past 12 months. But if you have never built any trust with the phone, with the investors for the past 12 months, it doesn't matter what you say in that meeting. Uh, probably you won't get you won't get past <laughs> it. <laughs> so I think it's much more about that trust is built over time. And how do you build trust is if you're genuine, if you're honest, uh, and if they see the effort that you're putting, you know, the milestone that you have achieved, you know, and, you know, 
everything writings on the wall so for investors to to trust you is easy uh, and even to to pivot uh, but if you have never shown that to any investor and you have always been the person who gives excuses when things don't work then I tell you uh, you is going to be hard for you to build that trust and investors will probably understand what you're saying mm, interesting yeah. now now that we're talking about investors mm. um, I think you being an angel investor i saw this article on uh, harvard business review where <laughs> they were saying you know there are angel investors but then there are devil investors right mm. <laughs> <laughs> now yeah. uh, of course a devil investor being someone who invests in a company and their involvement in the company leads to either the founders exiting and of mm. course sometimes that's a good move but in this case it's not a good move or the company going down the drain because mm. of their involvement mm. in the business yeah So and then there's this venture capitalist who's also a billionaire called uh, Vinod Kosla who is quoted saying 95% of VCs add zero value mm. I would bet that 70 or 80% add negative value to a startup mm. in their advising. Mm-hmm. So clearly and I think you know you mentioned just a few minutes ago that you know this may not necessarily be a route for everyone right True. um and you in your business we were talking about this earlier where you know you don't consider yourself a startup and you never like sought funding from anyone mm. so most times funding comes with strings attached of some sort yeah and there has been many cases of where investors get too involved um and like you said the trust has not been built they don't really understand the vision they don't mm. really understand the sector um and so they end up destroying the company mm. so from a startup's point of view where they are desperate to get money and sometimes they say yes to money that eventually regret like why did we say yes to this mm-hmm. particular investment mm-hmm. um how do they spot i guess quote unquote a devil investor <laughs> where okay, mm-hmm. this investment could lead to more trouble than good mm-hmm. for the company how do what signs do they need to pay attention to to know okay maybe this is not the right pairing mm-hmm. uh, of you know a startup and an investor yeah so one thing for sure is first of all as a founder you don't go to speak to any investor without doing enough research on on that investor mm. because investors will do some background research on you before you meet them mm. uh, so you do that you do the same uh, on investors as well and why are you doing all this research is to understand first of all you know where where do they come from you know what sort of backgrounds do they have what industry uh, you know do they have the competencies uh, in and most importantly what sort of investors in business have they invested in before because for that reason you know whether you are meeting the right investor or not because not as i said not all investors will be fit for you so it's so easy to go to speak to investors who probably have invested in similar businesses before and these are the investors who add value to you because they have done similar business not necessarily in your market but in other markets and, and these are the ones who will add value But secondly, uh if you you have a conversation with an investor who is more focused on money rather than business, then you you that's a red flag. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, money is the last thing. Uh you know, if you're, you're talking about valuations, you know how much stake I'm going to take in a company, you know, what I want, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. Uh to me I think that's a red flag. Uh for any serious in 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 smart investor think the, the the focus in the conversation is much more about the business itself and you as a person conversations the relationship that you want to build with that person that's why you see in other markets before the investor invest in your company they want to take you out for lunch they want to take you out for coffee not because they just love you they want to spend their money on you because they want to know you at a personal level 
because it's much more about personal relationship. It's, it's, it's less about money relationship. So if you have an investor who's more focused on money relationship rather than personal relationship, to me, I think it's a red flag. Uh, then probably you're moving into devil's zone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think it's much more about personal relationship. Because I tell you for a fact, when things are really tough, the trust thing that you're speaking about yeah. comes down to personalities now uh, where people can open talk to you. Uh but if people are more focused on money, they'll probably kick your ass out. Mm-hmm. But if you, they, they know you, they know what you're going through. Because at times, I tell you, founders struggle not because they don't have the skills to run a business. Sometimes they have personal issues, which probably take it all on, the, on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have someone who understands things at a personal level, might probably give you another chance to say, you know what? I know what you're going through now. Get your shit together mm-hmm. uh, and let's see what we can do. You see, because this person is less on money, is more on building the relationship, which to me, I think is critical in building the, the future of the company. Actually, yeah, I think that's a very good point because, yeah, it's true. I mean, life happens beyond just the workspace. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, some people, uh, and I think, I've, I think I've, I've definitely come across some examples of, you know, founders or people going through some hard times mm-hmm. um, where what's happening is not necessarily a reflection of their competence. It's just mm-hmm. that, like, we're all humans and we go yeah. through stuff. True. And it's true. If, you, if there's, that essence of psychological safety is not there where mm. you cannot openly say, okay, mm. I'm going through something. Maybe for the next three months, I should mm. be less involved in somebody else takes the rain while I get my act together and come back. Mm. Um, if that space is not built, like you said, I think mm. it can definitely be hard. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think, yeah, that's good advice. Hopefully someone takes it out there because mm. I think sometimes when, when you're desperate for money, yeah. you say yes to anything that yeah. comes. Mm. Um, but that's, it's short-term thinking. There is yeah. this idea of the principle of the path that it's not so much your intentions, it's the choices you make that can, you know, lead to uh, whichever destination you want. So I think, yeah. yeah, people should definitely always have foresight even when it comes to receiving money, you know, True. Uh, make the right choices. Yeah. Now, one of the biggest setbacks in, you know, in the success of an innovation in Tanzania mm-hmm. is infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, and then you add to that, you know, a bad habit of importing um, innovation instead of contextualizing it, mm. um, it leads to a very serious problem. So mm. what do you tell founders and teams innovating in a digital space in a country where our digital infrastructure mm. is not where it needs to be for mm. the digital solutions to thrive? Mm. I mm. think, you know, there's a, the ceiling is too low where, you know, to go beyond that, mm. um, there needs to be that infrastructure. But of course, mm. I think when we talk about innovation, I think 80% of it is really centered around digital solutions. Mm. So in a country with a challenge or a problem of digital infrastructure, mm. what do you tell people who want to innovate in that sector? No, I think for you to, first of all, to qualify to be an innovator, you have to be someone who can build something and navigate around the terrain that you're in, mm. uh, regardless of what it offers you. Uh, so if you think the infrastructure limit you to to build something and grow it. You're not an innovator. I always tell people, if you want to promote innovation, you cannot use banks' money. You need to have innovative ways to finance innovation. So that's one thing that you should understand. As an innovator, you need to navigate through the terrain. I love the book uh, titled How We Made It in Africa. I don't know if you have read the book. So it talks about people who have succeeded in Africa given the same infrastructure, same environment, same policies, same skills, markets, behaviors, and all that. So that tells you that as, a, as an innovator, you need to navigate through the terrain. Because, you know, I tell you one thing. Uh, yes, data is expensive, maybe, one. Secondly, uh, maybe the government doesn't see uh, digital infrastructure the way founders do. Uh, so as a result, in, instead of promoting it, 
uh, maybe they are, you know, building roadblocks for innovators to, to, to grow. So you have two cards to play. You may want to lobby for the government to give you the infrastructure that you need, or you may navigate through the infrastructure which exists for you to grow. And then if the government improves the infrastructure, that is going to be a plus for you to grow your company. And for me, I would always, always go for the latter. I think you can just build a company with, with the same environment yeah. uh, and and see how, you know, on the side. Now, that's why you have other institutions who will play a role to help you do that. Because you only have two options. Uh, you know, you can build it here. Or you can go to a market where you can easily build it. That's why you have seen people moving. If, mm. you, if, you, if you see in the U.S. in the 90s, to to hell to two thousand people are moving from other parts of of US going to San Francisco and Silicon Valley exactly in particular, yeah. but guess what? Uh, Jeff Bezos went to Seattle, uh, you know, because he thought probably that's where he could build Amazon. Uh, so at times you may, if you think the environment you're in it does not give you uh, the right infrastructure to build your company, you can move to other market, and this is not for everyone. Uh, you see. Uh, we, we have recently set up a company in Dubai. The idea is simple. You want to set up a holding company because you want to expand across uh, Africa. And we, we need to have one holding company which can sit in a market where we think it's not just safer, but it's easy to, to, to build it there and, and expand to other markets as a holding company. So you can always navigate crowdfunding, for instance, which might not necessarily be maybe the type of solution that people look at as, as, as digital, but a digital solution for me is fintech. There are no laws, no regulations that are near for crowdfunding. But what are we doing now? You do it two, two things. One is you build carefully that you don't break the law. So you can build something with no infrastructure without breaking uh, the existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And you can build the company. That's what you're doing with crowdfunding. That's one. But secondly, uh, you engage uh, those who are involved in, the infra- in building the infrastructure that you want by telling them what you can do for them to build that. So now we, have, we, are, we, we are in conversation with the regulator, CMSA, to see what can we do to support them to build the infrastructure for us to thrive. Mm. But before you go there, they want to see you doing it before you go talk to them. So what do you do? So you navigate through the existing infrastructure, build it, show it, prove it, and then you talk to them, say, you know, this is what you have built with the existing infrastructure. So if you can give one, two, three, we can unlock this and provide more access to finance to the market and create more jobs to the economy. So I think for... For innovators, I think it's much more about navigating through the, the, the digital infrastructure. As tough as it is, but you need to find a solution that you think you can navigate through. And that's another thing, of course, that will guide any founder to pick the right company, the right business. You don't go to, to start a company where the digital infrastructure is, is almost non-existent. And then probably you're going to have tons of challenges for you to, to, to thrive. In the, in the industry. So it's very important because as, to me, I think one of the major ingredients for success in a company is picking the right industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so if you if you pick the industry which has 17 different regulators that requires, uh, all these require you to, to file compliance reports every month, then you're in deep shit, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think, yeah, that's a very good point. And I think we, we even see it in, the, in, a, in, a, in an industry that's advanced as the US because mm-hmm. I think now, People are moving away from Silicon Valley to Texas True. because it's become heavily regulated in mm. California. And now yeah. they're like, you know what, mm. we're out of here. Mm. Um, and I think another example is China. We see that um, mm. people are saying, you know, with what's happening with China and, you know, the politics around it mm. might be a problem for their innovation because, mm. you know, um, a lot of those guys are inspired by the West. And so, you know, people mm. might actually start slowly start to move mm. to other parts of the world. So, mm. so, so definitely, and I, I understand that part, but I like the focus on 
figuring out a solution, which is where innovation comes in. Yeah. If you know, if you say you're innovative, then find a way mm. to go around the you know infrastructure problems that you're dealing with as well. I think a perfect example would be M-Pesa, which is, you know, uh, internet, uh, smartphone penetration is low. We'll just use USSD. That's what we yeah, need, you know, yeah. the, to oh. to do this. We don't need mm. an app. Mm. Whereas like, I guess an imported version of that solution would be develop an app mm. because there's some, because of course, where you're importing it from, mm. everybody has a smartphone. So, mm. so, so I like that idea. Now, one of the things you've said that you look for, you know, um, in businesses to invest in is a strong laid out growth plan. Mm. Now, in a country or in a sector, I would say, where regulations are constantly changing, in what ways can people be agile and, and I guess, adaptable? Mm. People work in those sectors because I think a perfect, a good example would be the fintech, the financial, you know, that's heavily regulated. Mm. Um, and because things are evolving, I think um, right now we we see if you want to send money to Kenya use mm. through a bank you know so many attachments you have to send in before they do that mm. with an impressa it's just like in 3 minutes somebody mm. has the money right mm. um but i don't think it's going to be that way forever mm. it's only a matter of time before suddenly now there are regulations there as well so True. so because it's a new industry in terms of like digitizing it and all these things are happening mm. but we all know that regulations are coming mm. so you have one plan today and then in a few months something and a regulation is being implemented that has forces you to change everything mm. so how how do how can people um this is, i think it's just beyond the startups i think any mm. business really mm. um where you if you operate in a heavily regulated industry how mm. how important is agility and adaptability and then how do how do people develop those two skills yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's a good question and, and, and interesting. I think, uh, first of all, no one can predict the future. Mm-hmm. I think we just have to agree on that. <laughs> uh, nobody uh, predicted COVID, uh, you know, and probably we're going to have more similar events in the future. It's easy to predict the economic crisis because signs are almost there, you know, mm-hmm. what is happening. You know, if, if you can see if, if if the growth of the economy is, is you know, is slowing down, uh, you know, there are always um, signs for you to predict what happened at the macro level. Uh, but in an environment where there's too much regulations or you're working in a strictly highly regulated industry, the question of agility to me, I think, comes with, with different things. One, I think you, you, uh, you know, you, first of all, you have to follow on and, and, and keep yourself updated with the industry. Work closely with the regulators, know what the regulators are thinking. Because I give you one very simple example. For me, I, I, first of all, I read everything that the government is publishing and I analyze it. What will be the repercussions uh, of this, whatever that we do. I, I listen to the budget, for instance, and then I analyze it and see, okay, what is it? Because that will give you the direction of the, com- of the country in the next 12 months. So at least you can predict to some degree what might happen and what might happen in a particular industry. So you, you always need to understand what will happen in your industry and probably find a way to position yourself to be ready. Uh, and uh, I don't know, uh, some companies tend to have a budget around uh, research and development for them at least to you know take them to a position where uh, if anything happens, they can change the direction uh, of, the, of the company uh, because they have predicted that before based on the R&D that they're doing. But it's always tough, I can tell you. I might not have the right answer to that, mm. but I think it comes down to 
what you do as a company. For me, if I speak for for what we see in, in Tanzania in particular, mm-hmm. uh, usually if if you work in an industry or in an economy mm-hmm. where there's a lot of unpredictability of policies, then probably we we are we it's, it's, a, it's a country problem. It's not your problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the, that's the change that we need to see top from top to to the bottom. And if the government in the, in the country cannot change that, and if the unpredictability continues to to face all industries in the economy, then probably you might you might need to rethink to change the to mm. change where you build your company and move to another country. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, because I, I tell you, it comes down to it's, it's, it's a policy environment. Predictability is a policy environment. If the government can publish new regulations after after three months, then we we are working in the wrong country. I tell you, and the government probably has no idea what they're doing to build the economy, mm-hmm. because we need to predict what will happen at least in the next twelve months, uh, and and for that is easy to do. So if you're in the financial industry, you should always follow up what the government is saying through the central bank. What is the central bank tends to publish the policy statements. You have to read the policy statement. What is it saying? You know, uh, you know if it's the if there's a speech by the minister of finance, you have to listen. What is he saying? Because he he speaks to you. He speaks to the industry, you know, mm. and probably you might also need to follow up what is happening across the region, yeah. and you might also see probably this might also happen in my country as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, as we're winding up, um, you talk about this concept of knowing when to be aggressive and when to be offensive when it comes to investing. Mm. Um, so, what do you need to look out for, or what do you look out for to know that okay, this is time, this is a time to be offensive? Or this is a time to be defensive. When I know enough, I, I'm aggressive. When I know less, I'm offensive. Mm. As simple as that. So it boils down to knowledge. To me, yeah. Because you, you, if you know enough about what you're doing, what you want to do, and what will happen, uh, I think nothing will stop you. You just have to be aggressive because you have everything that you want. Uh, they say leaders tend to make decisions even at times when you don't have enough information to render you make that decision. So, but if you have all the information in hand, uh, that's time to hit an L. So you have to be as aggressive as you can. And when you have less and you don't know what will happen, at least in the next few months, uh, whatever that you want to do, I think you take offensive uh, position. The same thing w- with investing. If you're investing in the stock market, if you're sure of uh, the company you're investing in, you know what we can predict will happen in, this, in the next 6 to 12 months, and then you take an aggressive position and then you, you point more money as you can. If you think probably things will change, there will be a downfall, and then you take an offensive decision. So it comes down to knowledge and information. Nice. Um, and so my, my last question to you is, uh, you know, uh, we'll just wound it up with your book, um, Smart Up Your Startup. I think mm-hmm. for, you know, those who are listening can go on Amazon and, and look for the book. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about the idea of sustaining your business pleasure. Mm-hmm. For those who haven't read the book, uh, mm. what, what do you mean when you say sustaining business <laughs> pleasure, and, and how do we do it? Yeah, so business pleasure is something that you get when you're starting. Uh, you know, I tell you, uh, if you have started your own business, uh, the first day in your business is the most joyful day. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's the day where you're happy, probably. It's like falling in love. Like falling in love, man. Uh, so it's like that. So that joy. Sometimes tends to be very, uh, you know, short-framed, uh, and you may not be able to sustain that over time for obvious reasons that we have been speaking here. Uh, and what will, will probably kill off your joy is this the failure of your, of your business. So what I'm saying is, don't get too excited 
you know, then don't get uh, overridden by the short joy that you see. You need to focus in the long term for your business to continue doing what brought you to that position for you to sustain that joy. Uh, mm-hmm. So don't just over expand, uh, you know, don't just overdo things, uh, which will probably put you in, in, in a dark position. If you started your company, maybe you have your, your 20 square meter office and things are moving well, don't get too excited. You want to expand quickly. You want to add another office. You want to hire more people. There's this notion in the market about team building, build a team, build a team around you. You know, don't don't get uh, uh, you know driven by that. You need to understand your your position. I've seen companies failing just because they want to expand too quick. So that's how that's how you 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 you, you kill your your pleasure uh, or moving into things they don't understand. One of the major things which uh, probably and this is the one that was actually failing in my book is you start a company and it's doing very well uh, initially. And then all of a sudden you start moving to other places, uh, you know. So today I see you, uh, maybe you're building your consulting company, and then probably after six months, I see you, uh, you know, you know, posting pictures on Twitter. You're in Iringa, and I, you know, you're doing farm business and all that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you know, agree's the future. Uh, and then probably six months down the road, you're somewhere doing some other things and all that. So you have not even built enough the first business to give you some strong uh, position for you to diversify. And then you start diversifying too quick. As a result, you're spreading yourself too thin. And that's where all the pleasure is, is, is dead. Yeah, that's a that's a very good way to mm-hmm. end the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, sustain that pleasure. And I like that because I think it's like a, in rap they call it what, a double entendre where, you know, mm-hmm. on face value, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it means, you know, it's all happy and whatever. But mm-hmm. in essence, you're like, no, it's the sacrifice, it's the perseverance, it's mm. being very focused yeah. and, you know, being very aware of what's happening around you, not falling into the hype. And Because mm. uh, I think it's true, you know, mm. you, uh, I've seen this happen where somebody starts a business, they have one huge client mm. and people know they made money and they start mm. sending them business proposals. You know, you should invest here and there and yeah, there. True, <laughs> and <true>. and <laughs> if you're, like you're saying, if you're too excited, yeah. you invest, you lose money, mm-hmm. and you fail to sustain mm-hmm. this pleasure that you mm-hmm. had to, mm-hmm. to begin with in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brother Salum, Asante Sana, thank you so much for your time and, um, you know, just for everything that you've shared. Yeah. Um, I know, you know, you've impacted many, many, many people who've, who have listened to this episode. And I think to our dear listener, thank you so much for, you know, making the time to listen to the very end. Um, do you have any last words or... No, I think the last thing I can I can say is just you know let's just build uh, uh, you know let's just focus on what we can do uh, regardless of the environment that we're in. We tend to complain a lot that the government needs to do this, needs to do that, things need to change. You know, we just build stuff, man, and then things will probably change. It will be an addition to you. Ah, thank you so much, yeah. and thank you for listening. This has been the Wild Others podcast, and I'm your host Ben Odin. Have a good day. This has been the Wildit Others podcast brought to you by Wildit Consultancy. Wildit Consultancy is a capacity building firm that exists to build highly productive and innovative leaders. To reach us, go to www.wildeadothers.com.